This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Sponsored by Amazon, Audible, HostGator, Gamefly, and supporters of independent media like you. Welcome to the Humanist Report. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 34th episode of the podcast. And I am happy to announce that we have officially passed 25,000 subscribers as of today. Just think about this. A a couple months ago, uh, when we started the year, uh, we passed 5,000. And now we are already at 25,000 craziness so welcome to the channel today's episode is sponsored by our latest patrons on patreon today we have corinne c kirsten b and abanu s thank you to each and every one of you um i always say you don't have to be a patron to support the show um just the fact that you view the podcast is more than i'll ever need and expect um but if you do want to support the show you can visit our sponsors such as audible and uh gamefly If you sign up for a free trial, they'll donate $15 to the show per free trial, even if you don't keep it. So a great way to try out their service and support the show. On today's episode, I will be talking about Debbie Wasserman Schultz, otherwise known as Debbie Do Anything for Hillary Wasserman Schultz, and how she's using anti-democratic tactics to stifle her opponent's campaign. Also, I will discuss an article that exposes Chris Matthews and the conflict of interest his show has with his wife's donors, who is, uh, if you don't know, Kathleen Matthews is running for Congress. I'll also discuss the potential of a Sanders-Stein ticket, as well as the hate that Trump is inspiring across the country. All this and more, stay tuned. I hope you guys enjoy the show. The DNC chair, Debbie Do Anything for Hillary Wasserman Schultz, has proven time and again that she is a corrupt corporatist establishment Democrat. See, what she's done is she has joined with the Republicans to attack Elizabeth Warren's agency that protects consumers from these predatory payday lenders and credit card companies. Now, additionally, she corroborated with the Clinton campaign, which is against DNC rules, to initially limit the number of debates. And furthermore, in an attempt to stifle Bernie Sanders' campaign, she cut off his access to Van in December, which is a system that candidates use to track voter information, and you basically cannot run a campaign without it. Uh, You're doing things in the dark, you're blind to uh, where to target your uh, grassroots efforts and whatnot. Well, I've got news for you that is probably not going to be surprising. She's at it again. To help rig her own election in the Democratic primaries, Mrs. Wasserman Schultz is blocking any challenger to a Democratic incumbent from accessing the voter file database, a vital campaign tool for any election. See, the reason why she's doing this is because she has a challenger, Tim Canova. Now, rather than run a campaign with integrity, she has decided that she wants to kneecap him. She wants to pull these corrupt tactics in order to win because her campaign is, let's face it, it's in trouble. So not only has there been dozens of petitions that have emerged, which has thousands and thousands of signatures calling for her resignation, but additionally, she's cost the Democratic Party tons of seats under her leadership. So clearly she's not a good leader, but yet she refuses to step down. And now she actually has a challenger for the first time ever. So what she's doing is she is cutting off access to Van for all of the opponents of Democratic incumbents uh, because she wants to protect that corporatist, centrist, democratic status quo that none of us like. Now, I just want to remind you, because I think this is so ironic, this is the head of the Democratic Party. 
That doesn't sound very democratic to me. Now, this was Tim Canova's response. I was also told that any Democratic candidate running against an incumbent Democrat would be denied access, even a lifelong progressive challenging an out-of-touch incumbent. This is unfair and undemocratic. My opponent already has untold advantages against an insurgent progressive campaign like ours. We are refusing to take corporate money while she has taken millions of dollars from Wall Street bankers, payday lenders, private prison companies, and other corporate special interests. How much more of an advantage does Wasserman Schultz need to silence the voices of grassroots voters in her district? Now, he continues by saying, This is nothing less than an entrenched establishment throwing up roadblocks against our political revolution. We've seen my opponent do this against Bernie's presidential campaign and other progressive challengers. As head of the DNC, Wasserman Schultz has pushed strategies that suppress voter turnout, all to protect incumbents and establishment politicians. She has routinely defended the party's use of superdelegates to block the will of Democratic voters in state after state. So this is incredibly frustrating. And let me just remind you, this is not just about Tim Canova and this one little district in Florida. This is about the future of the Democratic Party. So Tim Canova is someone with a tremendous amount of potential. He's not just going to be a house member potentially, but think about the repercussions if he actually has a successful campaign and he successfully challenges the DNC chair and wins. This could set him up for maybe a Senate run or a gubernatorial run and maybe someday president of the United States. So many of you say that Bernie Sanders is a once in a lifetime opportunity candidate. And that was true prior to his campaign, but now many Bernie crafts have come to fruition and it's not so true anymore because Tim Canova could be that future revolutionary change that we need, and any and everything you love about Bernie Sanders, uh, you're going to love about Tim Canova. So if we are really serious about a political revolution, then you have to grasp the importance of Tim Canova's campaign. So this is what I want to advise all of my viewers to do. We have to take action, we have to stop this, and we have to restore Tim Canova's access to Van. Otherwise, it's going to be really difficult for him to launch a successful campaign. So what you can do is you can email the Democratic Party, info at the Democrats. You can tweet to them at the Democrats, demanding, not asking, but demanding that they restore Tim Canova and other Democratic primary challengers access to Van. Uh, you can donate to Tim Canova. This is really important because you can help him overcome this if they don't overturn this decision. You can also sign the petition that Tim Canova is circulating. I'll put that link in the description box. Very, very important. Don't create your own. Please sign this one because we need to sign the ones that already have a large portion of support. And also, I would encourage all 25,000 of my subscribers to call 202-863-8000 because if we flood the phone lines they're gonna they're gonna know we mean business and i'm gonna call them right now because i feel like i can't ask all of this of you guys if i don't do it myself um so i'm gonna go ahead and do that now you'll probably not speak to anybody but you can leave a message thank you for contacting the democratic national committee our telephone reception hours on monday through friday 9 a.m until 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Our main phone I'm within that uh, window right now. They never answer. They don't want to hear we from us. I invite you to leave us a message. Send us an email at info. Speed it up. Oh my at God.
Hi, I'm a longtime Democratic voter, and I am calling to demand that the DNC restore Tim Canova's access to Van so that way he can successfully and effectively challenge the DNC chair, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, because the chair of the Democratic Party is someone who I would expect to encapsulate the values of Democratic voters. But time and again, she's proven that this isn't the case. She is a centrist corporatist Democrat. She takes money from companies that screw us over, and then she does their bidding. So for example, she's attacking Elizabeth Warren's agency, which protects consumers from these predatory payday lenders and credit card companies. She doesn't want that because she's beholden to them, and this is really frustrating. So the only way that I'm willing to stick with the Democratic Party and vote Democrat is if you guys do the bidding of voters, not donors. And seeing that time and again, Debbie Wasserman Schultz has proven that she not only doesn't care about us, but she actually hates us just based on her actions. She suspended Bernie Sanders' access to Van in December as well. Uh, I will not support this party. So here's what I want from the party. I am demanding that you restore not just Tim Canova's access to Van, but all other Democrats that are challenging these incumbent corporatist establishment Democrats because we no longer want them. And more and more, you guys are becoming like the Republican Party. Obama literally nominated a conservative Supreme Court justice. So if we disliked your candidates before, we at least voted because the Supreme Court, well, we were voting for the Supreme Court, basically. But now we have no incentive to support the party. I won't be donating. I won't be voting. So unless you stop with these corrupt tactics... I'm done with the party. I'm checking out. I'm voting third party. Uh, so I demand that you restore access to Van for Tim Canova. Thank you very much. Have a great day. So there you have it. You don't have to say exactly what I said, but make sure that you make it very clear that you are not asking. You are demanding. Now you can say this politely. You don't have to yell or scream, um, but demand that they do what's right because this is your party. Take it back. We start right now with Tim Canova's campaign. Throughout the course of this primary season, it has been the case over and over that media outlets as well as political pundits who claim to be neutral are found to have ties to either the Clintons or other political candidates. Well, I've got a new chapter in that story for you. Uh, so this one's about Chris Matthews. So according to The Intercept, Chris Matthews is giving airtime to individuals that contribute to his wife's campaign, Kathleen Matthews, and... He's not disclosing this information. So The Intercept explains, Kathleen's name has rarely come up on Hardball, but many of the guests on the show have become generous donors to her campaign. And the transparency Matthews promised has not extended to mentioning that to his audience. Using Federal Election Commission data and Hardball transcripts, The Intercept has identified 48 frequent guests of Matthews' program who have made donations to the Kathleen Matthews for Congress campaign. These individuals, their spouses, or their political action committees donated $79,000 as of December 31st, 2015. About 5% of the $1.5 million Matthews had raised as of that time. So it's not the case that they're just donating little bits of money here and there. This is 5% of 1.5 million. That's pretty significant. So now they also explain some of the guests have made donations after they were on the show, in some cases long after. But in at least 11 of these cases, hardball guests appeared on the program after Kathleen Matthews announced her candidacy and without any disclosure of the donations. And in at least three of those cases, the, don the donations came within days of the MSNBC appearance. Now, this looks suspicious, but... 
it surprisingly or unsurprisingly doesn't break any of the FEC rules. But one of the donors who was on the show, who donated to his wife's campaign, Steve McMahon, a consultant for Purple Strategies, had this to say when The Intercept reached out to him. Now, this is a regular guest who maxed out to Matthews with a $2,700 donation. Uh, and he says that it is inherently sexist for anyone to suggest that Kathleen Matthews isn't doing this on her own. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. If you see a conflict of interest that looks suspicious, don't point it out if it's a woman. Otherwise, you're going to be labeled as a sexist. This is the same exact thing that Hillary Clinton surrogates do to Bernie Sanders and his supporter. What? You think that uh, Hillary Clinton might be beholden to Wall Street? <laughs> You're a sexist. See, you can't criticize a female candidate even if you have factual evidence of a conflict of interest or direct corruption. That's sexist. You can only do that to the Republicans. It. This is just insane. The way that the Democrats use identity politics to stifle criticism, it's just really disgusting. Anna Kasparian makes this point all the time on The Young Turks, and it's, it's, it's a fantastic point. Uh, when you overplay that card in instances where there's not sexism, there's actual facts to back up your, your claims about corruption and whatnot, well, then now people will stop believing you. They're going to chalk up claims of sexism to nothing when there, there are still legitimate claims of sexism to be made against female candidates. So, for example, if you criticize Hillary Clinton for her hairstyles or what she's wearing um, or criticize her for yelling, for example, even that can be construed as sexist, legitimately so, in my opinion. People may disagree with that, but when you actually have evidence of a conflict of interest or corruption, it's not sexist to point it out. And this is what they do to put themselves above criticism and stifle any complaints about them. Don't point out the fact that a female candidate may be corrupt just like males, otherwise you're sexist. Well, guess what? If there's evidence for it, I'm gonna point out the corruption or conflict of interest regardless if you are male, female, uh, some other unknown gender that many of us haven't heard of, um, if you're blue, purple, black, white, if you don't even live on the planet, if you're from Mars. I'm gonna point out corruption where I see it. So you can try to use that card against me, but you only delegitimize yourself. So according to OpenSecrets.org, Matthews has raised $1.5 which is much more than any of her opponents, and her biggest donors have, get this, ties to either the Clinton Foundation's donors or Clinton donors themselves. Now, this isn't surprising considering the fact that she worked closely with the Clinton Foundation for four years during her time at the Marriott. So if you're wondering why Chris Matthews seems so biased against anti-establishment candidates, there you have it. He loves the establishment. His wife is fighting so hard to be part of the establishment, and because of the fact that she's raised so much money, she may very well get her wishes. But can I just say, can we please defeat her bid, please? We don't need any more corporatist Democrats to get in office, and we certainly don't need one uh, whose husband can give her a national platform and do propaganda for her. The media is supposed to be unbiased. They're supposed to be objective. So it doesn't matter that your wife is running. You're supposed to report the facts. But there's evidence here that if you donate to Kathleen Matthews' campaign, well, you're going to get some airtime there, and you could promote your book. You could promote your political campaign. You could do what you want, because these are a bunch of different people who's donating. Claire McCaskill is one of them. So she can go on there, promote her campaign, and... So... It's not a direct quid pro quo, but clearly there's a direct conflict of interest. Uh, and also, 
It's unethical. But you better be quiet. Shh. Don't point out the corruption because she's a female candidate and you don't want to be labeled sexist, do you? So shut up. Don't mention corruption. You can only do that for the Republicans, not Democrats. You can't be objective. You have to be neutral. You have to play team politics where you're on team Democrat, rah, 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 and you support them no matter what. Well, sorry, doesn't work that way. Uh, and Chris Matthews, you are not a real journalist. You are a pseudo journalist. Uh, and you're smug. You're pretentious. Nobody likes you on the left or the right. Uh, and the fact that you're bolstering your wife's establishment bid for Congress is disgusting. I get that it's your wife and you want to support her. And you could do that. You could even be open about supporting her on the show. And you are. But it's inherently misleading and unethical to get guests on the show presumably on the basis of their support for your wife. So if I uh, have an interesting story or something to talk about, you're not going to have me on unless I donate to your wife. I mean, I'm sure that he's not like telling them, well, you want to be on? You better donate to Kathleen. I'm sure that's not the case, but he's probably nudge, nudge. You know about my wife's campaign, right? Well, if you want some airtime, I might be able to help you out if you help us out. Wink, wink, wink. It's despicable. It's disgusting. And if MSNBC had any shred of integrity left, they would cancel Chris Matthews' shitty show. But... They don't. They've become the left-wing propaganda outlet for the Democratic Party. We now have a Fox News outlet on the left and on the right. Both do the bidding of the establishment. See, here's the thing. You can be left, you can be right, whatever. But you have to be objective. You have to report facts when you see them. So if a left-wing Democratic candidate is corrupt, point it out! It doesn't matter that you are left-wing and you're pro-Democrat. You have to be truthful. You have to report the facts. But they don't do that, and it's disgusting. And Chris Matthews, it, again, not a journalist, is a shill of a journalist. He is someone who just does the bidding for the establishment. He's pro-Democratic propaganda, 100%. Ever since Bernie Sanders' loss in Nevada, members of the Democratic establishment, media pundits, uh, Hillary Clinton supporters have all been calling for Bernie Sanders to exit the race. And ever since her victory on March 15th, well, calls have increased tenfold. Now, Bernie Sanders responded to these calls for him to drop out, and he basically called them absurd, and specifically he said, the bottom line is that when only half of the American people have participated in the political process, I think it is absurd for anybody to suggest that those people not have a right to cast a vote. To suggest we don't fight this out to the end would be, I think, a very bad mistake. People want to become engaged in the political process by having vigorous primary and caucus process. I think we open up the possibility of having a large voter turnout in November. That is exactly what we need. Now, seeing that Hillary Clinton tends to win big in states where turnout is low, this is what he had to say about that. A low voter turnout, somebody like Trump can win. High voter turnout, the Democratic candidate will win. So basically what he's trying to say is that if you have someone like Hillary Clinton go up against Trump in the general election, that's detrimental to the Democratic Party because nobody's excited about her. If you your candidate only wins when turnout is low, that's a really bad sign. If 33% or higher of uh, Bernie Sanders supporters won't support her in the general that's a really bad sign. If it's the case that 85% of younger voters support Bernie Sanders and not her, that's a really, really bad sign. So to put up a candidate that's not exciting anyone, it's not a smart electoral strategy. Now, should he drop out? What do I think? 
I'm not even going to entertain that. See, it's still mathematically possible for him to win. Is it difficult? Yes, because on average, he needs to win by about 58% in the remaining states. However, if he wins big in a delegate-rich state, such as New York, well, then that percentage can probably drop and go down by quite a bit. It's all about closing that delegate lead. Now, even if it does become mathematically impossible, he should still stay in the race until the convention. Uh, now, if you disagree with that, and you're a Hillary Clinton supporter, that's fine, but just know that you're a hypocrite. Because in 2008, long after it became mathematically impossible for Hillary Clinton to win against Obama, where'd she go? Nowhere. She stayed in the race until the very, very end. And that's what should happen to Bernie Sanders as well. He should stay in the race no matter what. Because as long as he's there, he's having a positive influence on the Democratic Party. He's getting the progressive message out, even though they love to ignore it. He is influencing Hillary Clinton to stay progressive. See, the reason why Hillary Clinton would love for him to exit the race is because she just can't wait. She's itching to get to that general election because she's so tired of having to pretend to be a progressive anymore. She's tired of saying, I'm a progressive that likes to get things done. She hates saying that. She wants to be what she really is, a centrist, moderate Democrat. And that's fine. Like, you can, you can be that. We, we know she's not fooling anybody, but because she has someone who's such a strong progressive challenger like Bernie Sanders, she has to play pretend, and she hates doing that. It's not her. So, no, I do not support this notion that Bernie Sanders should drop out. And if you think that we're giving up, you're crazy. There's still races to be won. Uh, there's still many states that haven't voted yet. I'm not going to give up until I cast my vote. That's bullshit. So you don't get to dictate whether or not the race is over before I even had a say. I don't think so. I'm going to continue to um, donate to Bernie Sanders' campaign and support him and his message. And I'll do that even long after this presidential election because I'm a true progressive. I don't want your corporatist, centrist, democratic, warhawk candidate that is Hillary Clinton. I don't want her. So if you think that I'm just going to give up when times get tough, you're wrong. I'm staying in this, Bernie's staying in this, we ain't going anywhere. So if you don't like us, if you want progressives to shut up, if you want Bernie Sanders to exit the race, tough shit. We're not going anywhere. And even when this Democratic primary season is over, and if Bernie Sanders doesn't become the Democratic nominee, that doesn't mean that we just go away. No, 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 no. We're still going to be holding the Democratic Party accountable. We're going to be just as loud, just as vocal as we ever were. So get used to us. The presumptive nominee of the Green Party, Dr. Jill Stein, has stated that she's open to the idea of possibly collaborating with Senator Bernie Sanders. So the Boston Globe explains, following her announcement that she will run on the Green Party ticket for the 2016 election, Stein stated that Sanders has a vision similar to her own and that the senator should have run outside the Democratic Party. Following those tweets, Stein sent a message out criticizing the Democratic Party. She has previously spoken out against the party, most recently in a Huffington Post interview where she said the course of recent events have made it apparent we need to go outside the Democratic Party to effect real change. Now, here are the tweets in question. So she says, because many are wondering, we have always been open to talking with Bernie Sanders about ways to move our shared goals forward. And she states that she has not received a response from Sanders' campaign uh, by saying, A Stein-Sanders collaboration has always been on the table. We've just never gotten a response to Green Party efforts to open a dialogue. 
so first and foremost, I do disagree that Bernie Sanders should have run for either an independent uh, presidential run or on the Green Party ticket because not very many people would know about Bernie Sanders. I mean, case in point, not very many people know about Jill Stein. But with that being said, that doesn't mean that she's not qualified uh, and a fantastic presidential candidate. So I want to parse this out for a second. So first, we've got to talk about how successful Jill Stein has been as a third-party candidate. So in 2012, she was the Green Party's nominee back then, and she managed to garner 450,000 votes, thus making her the most successful female candidate in a general election ever. And if that wasn't crazy enough, in 2002, she actually ran against Mitt Romney as a third-party candidate in their gubernatorial race, and she actually garnered 3% of the vote. I mean, that's insane for a, a gubernatorial race. That's a pretty significant margin. I mean, Green Party candidates, they have a really difficult time getting even 1%, let alone 2 but 3 That's a lot. Now, again, that's not winning, but... She's been incredibly successful. In fact, her success as a Green Party candidate and as an independent is unprecedented if you think about it. Now, if you combine her as well as her very progressive policy positions with uh, the momentum of Bernie Sanders, now, even though that would be a great ticket, we have to look at the pros and the cons. So if you have a Sanders-Stein ticket that's running for a Green or independent against a Clinton-Castro ticket, one of the two will be a spoiler, either the uh, Sanders Stein ticket or the Clinton Castro ticket. Uh, and I'm not so sure that it would be uh, the Sanders Stein ticket because there are many, many progressives and third party uh, voters that would support Jill Stein and Bernie Sanders over Clinton and Castro. But the problem is that one of them would be a spoiler and you'd assure that a maniac like Donald Trump or Ted Cruz becomes president. But think about this hypothetical situation. If it's the case that there really is a contested convention and somehow the Democrat or excuse me, the Republican Party steals the election from Trump and, and hands it to John Kasich or even Paul Ryan or Mitt Romney, well, then Donald Trump would almost definitely run as a third party candidate. Now you have a spoiler on not just one side, but two sides. And guess what happens? They no longer become a spoiler. You, if you split the votes on both sides... Now you're talking about actually winning. So if you have two left-wing, I say left-wing because I don't consider Hillary Clinton left-wing, but you have two left-wing parties and two right-wing parties, again, the quotations, because uh, they're not just right-wing, they're far-right on, on the Republican side. Well, if you have two on each side, basically, you have a crazy race, and you have a potential possibility where Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein could plausibly become president. I don't even know if my body could fathom that much awesomeness. Uh, Jill Stein, if you don't know her, if you're not familiar with her, look her up. She's awesome. Her and Bernie Sanders in the White House together? It would be amazing. Now, getting back to the reality, bringing it down here, uh, is it the case that Bernie Sanders would consider an independent or third-party run? No. Because he promised he wouldn't. He said that if he doesn't win, he would drop out and endorse Hillary Clinton. And Bernie Sanders has too much integrity to go back on his word. There's no way he would violate what he said. Bernie Sanders is glued to the principles. He's glued to what he believes is right. And that's one of the biggest draws of his campaign. That's why we love him so much. So Bernie Sanders would never do this because he feels as though it would decrease the uh, Democratic Party's chances of winning against the Republican. So... In all likelihood, not going to happen, but the thought of it would be just insane. Now, 
On the other hand, would Jill Stein potentially be a game changer like Bernie Sanders if she decided to run uh, in the Democratic Party? Absolutely. She is basically uh, the female version of Bernie Sanders, but she's still to the left of him. And in actuality, her policy uh, positions are more in line with what I agree with. I'm to the left of Bernie Sanders, as is she, and I agree with her on virtually 100% of the issues. I haven't seen anything where I disagree with her with. Uh, but would Jill Stein consider abandoning the Green Party and trying to change the Democratic Party from within? No way. She is not willing to do that. So it would be a great thing if Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein somehow collaborated if he didn't win the nomination, but at the same time, highly unlikely. But still, even the thought of such an awesome collaboration between Jill Stein and Bernie Sanders, it'd be awesome, man. Last week, I told you about how Donald Trump's divisive rhetoric has violent consequences. Well, America's Voice has tracked instances where Donald Trump, his supporters, or his staff members have either incited violence, harassed, or have uh, inspired hate across the country. And what they found is absolutely devastating. It confirmed what we suspected that Donald Trump has inspired hate across the country. So let's look at this. Uh, so when it comes to Illinois, college students spray paint slurs, swastika, and Trump on a chapel wall. This was on March 14th. Uh, Trump supporters harass immigration protesters in Iowa. Um, Iowa Republican backs ex executing undocumented immigrants. Not extreme at all. Uh, and also high school basketball players targeted by degrading Trump chants. Getting to Kansas, uh, Latino Muslim students attacked by Trump fan. Brown trash go home is what they said. Getting to Missouri, outside of a Trump rally, Trump supporters hurled racist homophobic slurs at protesters. In Kentucky, a black woman was physically and verbally assaulted by a group of white male Trump supporters. Uh, moving on to New York, Trump bodyguard punches a Latino man. This was September 3rd. Arab and Muslim protesters thrown out, thrown to ground at Trump event in New York. Uh, getting to Massachusetts, two Trump beat a Mexican. Two Trump beat a Mexican man. I think they mean two Trump supporters beat a Mexican man. Uh, in Boston, two brothers terrorize a homeless Latino man with a metal pipe, breaking his nose and leaving him with serious bruising across his ribs. Uh, two, Boston, two Boston Celtics fans kicked out of game after racist chant, Trump, Trump. In Virginia, Trump rally turns violent. Trump supporters push and spit on immigration protesters. We have in North Carolina, Trump supporters attacked Latina demonstrators, ripped down their signs. In South Carolina, Puerto Rican high school student choked and grabbed while protesting at a Trump rally. We have uh, dozens of black students kicked out of a Trump rally in Georgia. Uh, tr a Trump supporter yells white power in Alabama. Black Lives Matter protester kicked, punched, and choked by Trump rally attendee. And in Florida, Latino protester dragged and kicked at a Trump rally. 
and a Breitbart reporter forcibly yanked by Trump's campaign manager. Michelle Fields, a former Breitbart reporter, was forcibly yanked during a press conference in Jupiter, Florida by Corey Lewandowski, Trump's campaign manager. He continues to deny that the incident occurred despite a photo of Fields' bruises and an eyewitness account by a Washington Post reporter. This is occurring all throughout the country because of Trump's divisive rhetoric. If a candidate doesn't try to tone down the violence and actually incites Violence by telling people to punch protesters and kick them out and whatnot? That's really scary. The problem is that for the history of the United States, presidential candidates have always dealt with protesters. You can't blame this on the protesters. Now, I don't agree with them uh, going and disrupting uh, Trump's rallies and doing violence, but they do have a right to protest. It's called the First Amendment. You have your First Amendment right to assemble, but they also have their First Amendment right to do a counter-protest to a Trump rally. You don't have the right to assault them and and actually cause physical harm to them. Trump is inciting not just violence, uh, but he's encouraging hate across the country. And Americans love Trump, many of them, because now he made it socially acceptable to become overtly racist again. And when you say that Trump is using racially insensitive language, his supporters will retort by saying, well, how can you say that he's racist? He, he just wants to build a wall and kick out all 11 million undocumented immigrants. That's racist. You're targeting one group of people. You're trying to keep Mexicans out, one group, one racial group, out of the country. It's not that he is saying, I want to kick out, you know, the Polish or the Irish. He is targeting brown people. Why? Because that's what gins up hate. And that hate galvanizes people to go out and support Donald Trump. He's retweeting white supremacists. He won't disavow David Duke in the KKK. I mean, he did, but it took him a while because he doesn't really want to do that. See, I don't know that his campaign would be as successful as it is, even if he has the economic populist message without the hate. That's what makes Trump very unique. People love that he just says what he wants and is politically incorrect. It's not okay for you to incite violence and gin up hate. That's not what this country needs. That's my thoughts on this. Trump is a scary candidate and this is direct evidence why that is the case. So I know I'm a little bit late to the party on this, but I still had to touch on it. So Hillary Clinton recently attributed the national AIDS conversation in the 80s to none other than Nancy Reagan. Here's what she said. How difficult it was for people to talk about HIV AIDS back in the 1980s. And because of both President and Mrs. Reagan, in particular Mrs. Reagan, we started a national conversation when before nobody would talk about it, nobody wanted to do anything about it. Uh, and you know that too is something that I really uh, appreciate uh, with her very effective low-key advocacy but it penetrated the public conscience and people began to say hey we have to do something about this too. Now to give credit to her she's since apologized for making this factually inaccurate statement uh, and it's also just outrageous but other than that Hillary Clinton in turn has galvanized the national conversation around the Reagan administration's response or fumbled response to the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. So we're going to go back in history and look at Reagan's terrible response and show you just how costly it was. So The Guardian explains Reagan was president for nearly five years before he said the word AIDS in public. Nearly seven years he gave a speech on the health crisis that would go on to kill more than 650,000 Americans 
and stigmatize even more. So in the early years of the AIDS crisis, the Reagan administration was silent on the matter. Now, additionally, Dr. Marcus Conant got a close-up view of the Reagan administration's beliefs about AIDS and the gay community, not once, not twice, but three times. Conant, who was a clinical professor of dermatology at UC San Francisco, was one of the first physicians to diagnose and treat AIDS. His first bird's eye view was a 1983 meeting about the AIDS epidemic in Washington, D.C. with the White House liaison for medical care. Conan and his colleagues were going on and on about how this was a disease, an infectious disease, he recalled. Reagan's representative wasn't buying it. Her response was that this was a legal problem, not a medical problem, Conant said, simply because of who gay men with AIDS were and who their sexual partners were, she told him. These people were breaking the law. Now, the second time when Dr. Conant spoke with the Reagan administration, the assistant secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services suggested that America's LGBT population was so small that most people never even met them, which suggested that it didn't warrant a response. Again, this is the assistant secretary of the Department of Health who said this. Well, it's only a few people. It's just gay people. Nobody even has met a gay person, so who cares? Now, in 1987, when about 21,000 people had died at that point of AIDS, Conant wrote a letter to President Reagan, Reagan basically telling him that his patients were dying and said it is incumbent on his administration to direct the Centers for Disease Control and National Institutes of Health to begin efforts to find the cause and treatment for this disease. And this was Reagan's response. I kid you not. Nancy and I thank you for your support. That's it. So basically... I don't care about gay people. They're gay. They're gross. Let them die. That's the response. Now, maybe it's the case that deep down, the Reagan administration actually did care about gay people, which that wasn't the case. But even if it was, he decided to ignore the AIDS crisis because this was a politically expedient position. So back then, uh, gay people were thought to deserve AIDS because they were perverts. What? You, you have a different sexual orientation? Well, you deserve to die. This is a, a gay cancer that God gave to you. So n knowing that most of the public felt this way about gay people, Reagan was happy to oblige them because if he went against their will and if he actually did what was right, then maybe that would uh, hurt his campaign, hurt his legitimacy. So he decided to allow people to die instead for political expediency. Now to add insult to injury, Reagan's press secretary, Larry Speaks, as well as the full room of press, often erupted in laughter when discussing the AIDS crisis. Take a listen.
Now, Reagan's press secretary, Larry Speaks, even made homophobic comments during press briefings. So, for example, one of the reporters brought up a Reagan quote where he used the word fairy tale. And then uh, upon getting that question, the press secretary said, oh, you said the word uh, fairy. Uh, I heard Larry's ears perk up when the word fairy came out. Now, Larry's just another reporter in the room, but basically implying, oh, fairy, he's a fag. Ha 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 ha. So funny. Again, homophobic comments during a press briefing for the White House. The administration is directly endorsing homophobia. Now, I'll put the video link in the description box, which has more instances where Larry Speaks laughed off the AIDS crisis. But this just goes to show you that Reagan's response, or lack thereof, to the AIDS crisis was terrible. This is someone who is touted as a conservative hero. Even liberals admire him because he was so charismatic. He had, the, had a way of speaking that was commanding and got people to pay attention. But this was a bad person. This was someone who thought that gay people not only should die, but maybe they deserve to die because of their sexual orientation and it was different than his. That's sickening. And the fact that many people don't know this, including Hillary Clinton, who was an adult at that time, who was alive and very much politically active, could misspeak and say that Nancy Reagan helped spark a national conversation about AIDS, it's egregious. His administration has blood on its hands. He's responsible for the death of thousands of American citizens. And for that, he is one of the worst presidents in American history. So recently, President Obama did something that communicates to me that the Democratic Party no longer has a single redeeming value. See, I was always someone who disliked the Democratic Party. I felt disenfranchised by them, but I voted for them, especially for presidents, because, well, if you don't like the policies, you at least get good Supreme Court justices. So, for example, even though I dislike Bill Clinton very much for moving the entire Democratic Party to the right, well, he still appointed Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the best Supreme Court justices, arguably the best of all time. Uh, Barack Obama, I mean, he appointed uh, Sonia Sotomayor, one of the best Supreme Court justices ever. Now, I fully expected both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders to appoint good Supreme Court justices. But Obama has officially showed me that this one redeeming value of the Democratic Party no longer exists. That's right, you already know, uh, Barack Obama has announced that he will be appointing a conservative, Merrick Garland, to the Supreme Court. Now, of course, he's doing this to try to extend an olive branch to the Republicans because they've already said they're going to fight him at every turn. But I've got news for you, Obama. You can literally resurrect Ronald Reagan and try to appoint him and they're going to block it. They don't want anything to do with you. This is a partisan matter, not a policy matter. And by appointing a conservative, you fell for their trap. Hook, line, and sinker. You fell for it. So the one reason why I was always inclined to vote for Democrats over third-party candidates in general elections was because, well, they're going to appoint Supreme Court justices. This is important. I want them to, support, to appoint Supreme Court justices that are liberal, who are going to overturn Citizens United, and that are going to maintain Roe v. Wade and marriage equality. But do we know what Merrick Garland's stance is on Citizens United or McCutcheon? We don't. Do we know what Merrick Garland's stance is on marriage equality? 
Nope. We have no reason to vote for the Democratic Party anymore. Hillary Clinton supporters have actually made a good point saying that, look, you've got to support whoever the Democratic nominee is. Otherwise, a Republican's going to get in and he or she is going to appoint Supreme Court justices that are highly conservative that'll destroy the country. But guess what? Doesn't matter anymore. We already knew that you get the same goddamn policies, regardless of the party who you vote for. But now you're going to get the same type of Supreme Court justices. Now people say, look, Hillary Clinton, she's going to be different, right? Well, I could already envision it now. I don't trust her. So she's going to get in and say, look, I understand that there's this Supreme Court opening, but I think that we need to uh, unite the country. And I can't, I can't do this to the Republicans. I can't appoint someone who's incredibly liberal, so I'm going to pick a moderate too uh, and unite the country. So now this throws the idea that Hillary Clinton would appoint liberal justices into question. What if uh, Republicans maintain the Senate? Is she going to get up there and put up a centrist or a right-wing justice too? Again, this is so frustrating. We don't have a two-party system. We have a one-party system, and the one thing that separates them is a couple of social issues and their partisan ID label. They hate each other just because of their names. If you have an R, uh, the Ds are going to hate you. If you have a D in front of your name, the Rs are going to hate you. That's all it is. It's partisan games. And when it comes to policy, they're both the same. They're both trying to appoint their don appease their donors, and now... They're both going to appoint the same type of Supreme Court justices. Why would Obama do this when it's an election year and you've got to rally up the base and get them excited? But you, you're telling me that we have to support the Democratic Party when they're going to put up these centrist, right-wing Supreme Court justices? There's not one reason to vote for you anymore. Why would we vote for you? But yet, I'm supposed to fall in line and do what the media and the Democratic establishment wants me to do because it's Democrat and, you know, they're better on social issues and you don't want to get conservative Supreme Court justices on the court, do you? It doesn't matter who you vote for anymore. Both parties have the same exact agendas. Appease their donors and fuck over the voters. That's what they do. That's what they've done all along. And that's what they're going to continue to do. So unless you get someone in there like Bernie Sanders, nothing will change. But we know Hillary Clinton will most likely be just like Obama and buckle to what the Republicans want. Congratulations, Democratic Party. You have now disenfranchised 100% of your base. So on humanistreport.com, we allow viewers to leave voice messages for us, and sometimes uh, I will play those on the show. So today, I want to play a message from someone who discusses why he's Bernie or Bust and why the two-party system does not work. So if you'd like to leave one, feel free to head on over to humanistreport.com, but in the meanwhile, we'll go ahead and listen to his. The two-party system doesn't work. We're all aware of this. We know party system doesn't work, and we're going to do it anyway. We're going to playing into the fact that we need to stop Trump, and Hillary's the only one that can do it, and blah, blah, blah. The truth is, is that there'll always be another Trump. There'll always be someone meaner and, and smarter and more capable on the right that just wants to fuck with everything. They're fucking with everything right now, still, in preparation for her to win. When do we get out of the cycle? When do we start asking why we don't trust these people? Why they're beholden to the corporations, but we're supposed to trust that they have our back at the end of the day? Because I know I can't do anything to them. I know I did not give her millions of dollars. I know I didn't do that. So if my vote isn't going to matter, I'd rather go, I'd rather go green.
or Ryan Sanders is an independent. Sorry, Hillary. Yeah, I think that what he just said encapsulates the feelings of so many of us. It doesn't matter. This is really the first time when uh, progressives have really rose up and challenged the democratic status quo and said, look, we don't like that your candidates take money from corporations because you screw us over in the same way that Republicans do. So by voting Democrat, we tend to perpetuate this cycle where we just get a new corporatist centrist establishment Democrat after corporatist centrist establishment Democrat. And it just will never end. So I think that more than anything, this election is where we take a stance and we say enough is enough. I refuse to vote for someone who's going to be beholden to corporate interests and billionaires. It's not acceptable, and the country cannot continue on this way. We live in a plutocracy, uh, and it's no wonder why our turnout is one of the lowest in the world for advanced democratic regimes. It, it, it just is. And that's dangerous. That's a sign that our democracy is not healthy. That's a sign that citizens have checked out of the political process not acceptable. It's really troubling. So uh, I think that everything that this viewer said, it, it's, it resonates with many people. Uh, now, again, I don't know that I'm 100% Bernie or bust, but at this point, I honestly cannot see myself voting for someone other than Bernie Sanders or Jill Stein. So I, I really don't know that I can continue to play into this scam that is the Democratic Party and so-called democracy. I, I just don't know if I could do it anymore. So I think that this was a great call. Definitely, um, definitely interesting. And I agree with a lot of what he said. So if you would like to leave a message for us, then head on over to humanistreport.com and maybe we'll play it on the podcast. Well, that's the episode. I want to thank all of my viewers for tuning in so loyally each week. And I also want to welcome all of my newest subscribers to the channel. I know there's a ton of you. Uh, so thank you all for watching. Uh, I will see you guys next week.